Amen. Thank you, Robin. Great thought, great song, great job. Go ahead and get in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 9. And there's a lot to be said in life for a quiet time. When there's no television, no radio, no music, just quiet. And to uh, talk to the Lord, to be able to think clearly, and uh, it's, I strongly recommend it. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we are working our way on Sunday nights and have been for some time on Bible doctrine, uh, spending time talking about what we believe the Scriptures to teach and why uh, we believe these uh, things uh, from the Scriptures. Believers, of course, um, start their Christian walk uh, with what the Scriptures teach, and those who are wiser, those who are more mature, also learn why. Why do you believe what you believe? And sound doctrine, of course, is the key to our spiritual stability, and therefore the Scriptures exhort us to give attendance to doctrine and attendance to reading and to take heed to doctrine. It warns us in the last days that some would depart from the faith. It exhorts us to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And you and I can certainly never stand for or understand where to stand unless we know what the faith is, unless we know what sound doctrine is. Last week, we talked about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, one of the two ordinances that Christ gave to His churches, and we talked about the symbolic elements of the unfermented fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread, and why those were the only proper elements that would represent the uh, blood of Christ and the... uh, sinless body of Christ. We talked about how we are supposed to examine ourselves uh, before participating in the Lord's Supper. We talked about the high value that our God places on, on taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And He doesn't do that. Uh, and we made this very clear. He doesn't do that to keep believers away from the Lord's Supper. He does that because He wants to bless those who take his supper in a worthy manner. Uh, we talked about why we practice closed communion here at Bible Baptist Church and even have a separate service to uh, do so. But by the way, before I start, just so you know, I am not sick, at least as far as I know. Might die later, but as far as I know, I'm not even sick. I have bad sinuses, so if I have to pause and cough, um, just, you know, bear with me. Don't Panic, oh, he's bringing COVID into the church. I'm fine. Uh, I just have sinus crud. Some of you can relate to that. Some of you uh, cannot. But I'll do the best I can to make it through the whole message without coughing into my arm. And uh, by the way, that is an effective way to cough into your arm, right? And uh, so much better than coughing in the hand you shake everyone else's hand with. Uh, Tonight, I would like to speak about a topic that uh, I don't really talk about much at Bible Baptist Church. Uh, The subject is giving. Uh, I go to pastor uh, fellowships, and there's always a variety of of subjects talked about and listening to other pastors and how they handle their churches and uh, churches that have whole stewardship months uh, every uh, year in their church calendar. And, And sometimes I come under conviction that I don't talk about giving enough. Uh, I really strive to give you a balanced spiritual diet, uh, but quite frankly, it is just as bad to speak 
too little about the subject of giving as it is to speak too much about the subject of giving. Uh, talking about money too much probably drives some people away. Uh, talking about money too little keeps spiritually minded people uh, who are growing from being blessed by giving like they're supposed to give to the Lord and to His work. Uh, my old pastor, uh, he used to say, you can tell where a person's heart is uh, if you look in their checkbook. Now today, uh, a lot of people don't even write checks. And people like me write very few checks, uh, but even so, you can tell where a believer's heart is by looking at how they spend their money. Now some people, they just seem to naturally give. And that doesn't actually surprise us. Some people, their natural disposition is giving. And we also know from Romans chapter 12 that some believers have the spiritual gift of giving. And if you are naturally disposed to give and spiritually disposed to give, you're probably someone who sits here and finds it quite easy to give both to the Lord, to the Lord's work, to special causes. Uh, I don't come to you not tonight from that perspective. Um, I, after understanding, I think, what the Scriptures teach about how someone with the spiritual gift of giving behaves himself, and after watching those that I think have that gift, I've walked away and decided I do not have the spiritual gift of giving. Uh, I give because I'm supposed to. I give because I believe God makes great promises to those who give. Uh, when should we give? Where should we give? How much should we give? Those are all good questions. How should a biblical church finance the work that she feels called to do for Christ's sake in our world? Should we have bingo? Should we get donations from community businesses? Should we be focused on big donations from a few wealthy people? Is it even the role of the community or government or businesses to finance the work of the church? Or is that actually the role of the people of God? If we're ever going to be the church we're supposed to be and the people that Christ desires us to be, it is always going to affect how we handle our money. Now in the church, the two most controversial subjects are, number one, how do you handle your children? And number two, how do you handle your money? You may or may not agree with this, but I believe in those two subjects, you can really tell the depth of your real faith. There are a lot of people with real faith who are willing to suffer themselves for their faith, but they won't let their kid ever pay any price for their faith. Which shows the depth of the parent's faith. Amen. Uh, and the same thing with our money. You may disagree with that, but it's no surprise that on those two important issues, the Bible has a lot to say about both, and I still am completely convinced that those two things best display the depth of people's faith. Now, when I announced my subject tonight to be the subject of giving, there were probably some of you that said, oh no. Uh, some of you were probably a little frightened, but listen, you and I ought never be frightened to learn what the Scriptures teach about any issue, and that's all we're going to do tonight. 
we're going to look at what the scriptures teach about the issue of giving. If you're able to stand tonight, if you would stand, please, in honor of God's word. And thank you for your patience with me. The title of my thought tonight is God Loves a Cheerful Giver. God loves a cheerful giver. By the way, as I was meditating and thinking about this scripture this week, I found it interesting in my mind that the scripture doesn't say God loves cheerful giving. God loves a cheerful giver. Interesting. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Thank you. you might be seated. As we approach this particular section of the Scriptures, Paul had been bragging about the generosity and the generous attitude of the believers in Achaia. Look at chapter 9 and verse 2. He says, For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Now, Corinth was in Achaia. And places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, they were in Macedonia. And Paul says, hey, listen, uh, I've been bragging about your attitude about giving here, there in Corinth and in Achaia. I've been bragging about your attitude about giving to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Uh, hearing about the generosity of the Corinthian believers had motivated the believers in Macedonia to become more Giving. Paul wanted to make sure, though, they understand, understood a few things about giving. Notice in chapter 8, verse 8, he says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others to, to prove the sincerity of your love. I've got that little phrase underlined in my Bible. Prove the sincerity of our love. One of the things that our giving does is it proves the sincerity of our love. Proves the sincerity of our love for God. Proves our sincerity for the love of what God has commanded us. Proves our sincerity for the love of the church. Proves our sincerity for love of people. Love is always an action word. Though it is sometimes a feeling, it is always an action word. Now their willingness to live at a lower economic level because they gave faithfully uh, made them live more like Christ. Look at verse 9 there in chapter 8. The very next verse says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Now, I'm not implying you and I have to live in poverty to show our sincere faith and love for Christ, but I am saying this, if your giving doesn't impact you economically, you're probably not giving like you should. Jesus Christ, on purpose, when he left the golden street of heaven, the throne of the universe, the city whose walls were jasper, and the city shone like gold. When he left all those riches, he came to earth, not for a mansion, not for a palace. He came to earth to walk the dusty streets of Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and Galilee. He had nothing. 
And he did that for us. It affected his economic status, so to speak. And the time had come, as Paul is writing the Corinthian people, for action to replace their words and good intentions in verse 11 of chapter 8. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness of will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. They had promised to give. They had talked about giving. Paul bragged about their giving. It motivated people in Macedonia to give when they heard about the generous attitude of the people in Corinth. And Paul says, listen, now is the time to back up what you said. Now's the time when the rubber meets the road and you need to be a person of action. In fact, he even repeated the fact that their giving proved the sincerity of their love for Christ and others. Look at verse 24 of chapter 8. He says, Wherefore, shew ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. (laughs) See, the Bible is very clear. How we handle our money proves the sincerity of our faith and it proves the sincerity of our love for God. By the way, I hope you're a giver. And as they were preparing to give, Paul is going to give them guidelines that went beyond an amount. By and large, when we start our Christian life, and some people never leave this place, we want to know how much do I need to give and keep God off my back? What is the least money I can give and still be considered faithful with our money? But while many look to guidelines so they can do the least they can do, giving and generosity are not a narrow line or a minimum percentage God is looking for. In fact, He gives us a principle that we read earlier in chapter 9 and verse 6. He says this, I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. It's a principle or doctrine. We were discussing that this week. The word doctrine just means teaching. And whether it's fair to call a Bible principle or doctrine or not, it's a bit of semantics and you can sort of land on that wherever you want. But the Bible doctrine, the Bible principle in chapter 9 and verse 6 is simply this. Anybody who sows, they they give sparingly, a little here and a little there, you're going to reap sparingly. Anyone who sows, who gives bountifully, that means generously or sacrificially, they would reap bountifully and generously. It's the Bible principle, the Bible doctrine. When we give money sparingly, we receive money sparingly. When we give money bountifully, we then receive money bountifully. You see, giving is actually a matter of our faith in God. Just like the farmer in the springtime takes his seeds and plants them into the soil, knowing that right then he doesn't see anything from it. He's just put money out. He's just put effort out. And all he hopes is that by faith, when you get to the end of the season, that seed that he sows is going to produce much more than he put into the ground. It's an issue of faith. Now understand, this is not some promise to be wealthy if you tithe. It's a promise that if you tithe, you would have more than you would otherwise have if you don't tithe. This is not a threat of poverty to those who do not tithe. It's a threat that if you choose not to tithe, you will have less than you would have otherwise had if you chose to tithe. 
Now, over the years, Sharon and I have given a lot of money to the Lord's church and special causes, and you may disagree with this, but her and I both believe we have more today than we would have otherwise had because over those decades, we have tried to give faithfully and generously. In fact, when some issue comes up and I'll say to the church, hey, pray about how much you should give for this, I'll go home and I'll say to Sharon, how much do you think we should give? And almost always her number is bigger than mine. So what do you do? I cheap out. No, I don't. I just do what she wants. Hey, happy wife. Never mind. Um, But all, all this brings up a good question. Why is giving a matter of faith? Why does it prove the sincerity of our faith? Why does giving prove the sincerity of our love? You see, giving demonstrates that faith, that everything that exists belongs to God, not to a government or a nation or an organization. Giving demonstrates that every means by which you and I receive income is the gift and grace of God. Giving demonstrates that we have faith that everything we have belongs to God rather than us. That's a statement of faith. Giving demonstrates faith that God will take care of us and be good to us with whatever it is we have left after we've given. Giving demonstrates faith that God will reward us tomorrow for what we chose to give today. You see, when you and I believe God with our finances, we will handle our money the way God has taught us to handle our money. Listen, every issue of life is an issue of faith. By faith, you either believe you're better off coming to church on Sunday than you are sitting on your couch. That's an issue of faith. It's an issue of faith. By faith, you say, you know what? Uh, The morality my Creator has taught me to live by will actually be better for me than living by the morality I feel like living by. Everything is an issue of faith. Giving is an issue of faith. Will I believe how God teaches me to handle my finances and do it that way or not? Now, Paul continues to teach believers about giving, not with a minimal amount to give, but with principles that reveal the condition of our heart. Notice in verse 7 of chapter 9, every man, according as he purposeth in his heart. And I've got that word heart circled in my Bible, and a little note to the margin of my Bible that says giving is a heart matter. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. God says, I want you to give, but not with a stingy attitude. Not grudgingly, reluctantly. Our giving should not just be done because we're supposed to, though. That's a good enough reason to start. You need to get out of your head that any motive other than the best, best motive is a bad motive. Listen, there are a lot of good motives. It is not a bad motive to do what we do out of just obedience to God. But what God is teaching us is not that doing this because of obedience is bad. What God is teaching us here is that He doesn't want us to stop there. What He wants in our life is for you and I to grow where our giving is not grudgingly, just simply out of obedience, but it's cheerfully. From our heart. Cheerfully means gladly, freely, easily, and God loves that kind of giver. 
Now, the attitude that our Lord is looking for when we give is very clear. (laughs) But here's the problem. We all feel very strongly about our money. In fact, you might be here saying you really don't care about money. And if you make that statement, it's probably because you still live at home. And somebody else is paying for all your stuff. But as soon as you get to the place where you're not uh, just getting your stuff freely from someone else, you're going to care about your money. You see, our giving proves the sincerity of our love for God and our faith in God and demonstrates our faith, which still continues with this question, how much should we give? Where should we give the money that we give? By the way, I'm not teaching on this tonight because I want your money. Uh, By the grace of God, the amount we put in our 2022 budget uh, was $12,800 a week. We have far exceeded that. Listen, every church needs money. But I'm not preaching this tonight because we need your money, though we will find a way to spend your money if you give it. I'm teaching this because you're not going to live a blessed Christian life unless you learn to give. Uh, If you give sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you give bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. Now, that doesn't mean if you put 10 bucks in a plate uh, this week, someone's going to give you a $100 bill a week from now. That's not what you're talking about. Just like a farmer. He, he didn't put that uh, seed of corn in the ground, and then the next week, go out there, and there's a stalk in three years. You make the pattern of your life and your giving giving bountifully and faithfully, and God will always make sure you have enough and then some. How much should we give? Where should we give the money we give, for Christ's sake? By by the way, just to be really clear, uh, as a church, none of our ministries are allowed to go to our local businesses and say, hey, uh, can you give us... 20 free Skyliners were having a kid's activity. You're not allowed to do that. Say, why? It is not the community's job to finance our stuff. Listen, we are here to give to the community, not take. You say, Brother Wally, but if you would ask, a lot of them would, and they'd be glad to. You're right, but we're not asking. It's not their job. I don't care if other churches ask. We don't ask. We are here to first and foremost give truth and love to this region. Where should we give? How much should we give? Please first go back in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 27. Now, depending on if you're a giving person or not, you're already cringing. You know, people who tithe love for the preacher to stand up and preach on tithing. People who don't tithe, you, 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 I don't know. I should have stayed home tonight. But by the way, live stream, this is still true. By the way, if you're watching live stream, I'm glad you're watching. I hope if you're watching live stream, it's because you're sick. Because if you just stayed home, it's like watching a fireplace on your television screen. The fire still looks fine, but you can't feel any warmth. 
you must be near the real fireplace to feel the warmth. I'm not talking to anybody who's sick. I'm not talking to anybody who's older and infirmed, who's uh, fearful because of special circumstances of getting COVID. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to anybody within the sound of my voice that could be here but chose not to be. You say, well, if you preach like that, people are going to stop coming and watching live stream. Listen, I've been preaching like this for 16 and a half years. What I said is true, whether people like it or not. I'm actually surprised this number of people's come. If you'd asked me 16 years ago if we'd ever have this many people, I'd say, eh, I don't know. I'm really not that likable, and mostly people don't like what I have to say. But you're here. Here's number one. God clearly teaches people begin giving a tithe. And just so you know, the word tithe means one-tenth. Leviticus 27, verse 30. It says, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's, it is holy unto the Lord. Notice that first tenth is holy to the Lord. It is separated unto the Lord, it is His. It says, If a man will at all redeem out of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part. You say, what's that mean? It means if you had uh, ten bushels of apples... And you say, okay, I need to tithe. I need to give one bushel of apples. But you look at that bushel of apples and you say, well, I don't want to give that bushel of apples. If you pay for the price of those apples plus 20%, you can keep those apples. That's what he's saying. Uh, you have uh, 10 lambs. God says, hey, one of those is mine. If you look at that lamb and the value of that lamb is 50 bucks, and you say, well, I'd like to keep that lamb. Instead of doing that, you could get paid... Pay 50 bucks plus 20%, which is $60, I think. I hate to do uh, math in front of 200 people, but I think that's right. Uh, you, you could do that. That's what he's saying. It belongs to God, and, and all you math whizzes can correct me later. Verse 32, and concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. He shall not search whether it be good or bad, neither shall he change it. If he change it at all, then both it and the change thereof shall be holy, and it shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. Uh, giving the first tenth is true for a child making $5 a week. It's true for a doctor making $10,000 a week. Now, I'm told, and we're not studying this tonight, that under the law of Moses, there were nine different occasions where the people of God gave their resources to God or the work of God in some way. They tithed, they redeemed their firstborn child, they redeemed the firstborn animal. Uh, they gave redemption money to build a tabernacle. They gave offerings for their sacrifice four times a year. The farmers left the corners of their land unharvested for the poor. They rested the land every seven years. Uh, by the way, that, that's 14%. Uh, people don't like it, but God has always used giving to be a part of living by faith and as a mark of our faith. That was not just true today. That was true under the Mosaic law as well. In fact, some people say, well, I don't tithe because tithing was under the law of Moses and I'm no longer under the law. I'm under grace. And that is true. You're no longer under the law. You are under grace. But let me ask you this question. Does God expect more or less from you living under law as under grace? 
If you have the idea that God expected more from an Old Testament Jew living under law than God expects from you and I today living under grace with the death, the sacrifice, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus complete and a completed New Testament, if you think that God expects less from you than an Old Testament Jew, your thinking's messed up. Listen, read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't lower expectations when He came and established what we call grace. Uh, l- listen, uh, He changed and made it harder. Uh, the command not to kill was raised to uh, not uh, hating. The, the, the command to not commit adultery was raised to not look on a woman with a lustful look. Uh, the command to be acceptable, to hate your enemies, became to love your enemies. Jesus in grace didn't lower God's expectations. It raised them. You and I have so much more under our better covenant and better promises with the Spirit of God living in us today than anybody ever had in history. God didn't give us grace so we could do less out of love than the Jews did out of duty. God gave us grace so that we could do more for better reasons than anyone ever did living under the letter of the law. By the way, I'm going to make that statement again because I want that to sink in. God gave us grace so we could do more for better reasons than anyone did living under the letter of the Jewish law. So I don't like that God has higher expectations for me. Well, uh, He does. Now, one of the most prevalent and poorly reasoned excuses in our day for people not tithing is they say, well, uh, God uh, gave tithing under the law and I'm living under grace. By the way, just to be extra clear, tithing did not begin with Moses and the law. Tithing began long before Moses. Go back in your Bible to Genesis 14. We're going to go back to Abraham, who is in the neighborhood of 500 years before Moses. And of course, that number varies because Abraham lived to, what was it, 176? Is that right? 175 eh, a year. And Moses lived to 120. And, and so when you link them together, it just depends on what part of their life you're linking. And so that one year doesn't really matter. Mindy, thank you for sharing that with Joe so he would know what to say. Um, but in Genesis chapter 14, 500 years before Moses, uh, Abraham is tithing. Look in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, and by the way, Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. Salem means peace. Uh, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was a priest to the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Abraham, by faith, gave Melchizedek, king of Salem, a tithe of everything he had. 500 years before Moses. Turn up a few pages of Genesis chapter 28. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was one of people's least favorite Bible characters. He's just a slippery, uh, shady dude for most of his life. Lived with his mama till he was almost 90. And uh, when he left the land out of fear of his 
uh, unsaved and ungodly brother Esau, he made God some promises of what he would do if he ever came back and got right with God. Notice what Jacob says in Genesis 28, verse 20. Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then, and I've got that word circled in my Bible, you know, some people might disagree. I don't think Jacob was saved yet. Then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone, which I've set for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. And so Jacob says, God, you bring me back, then you'll be my God. And when you're my God, I'll give you a tenth. You say, why? Because tithing didn't start with Moses. Uh, by the way, it didn't stop with Moses. Jesus spoke about it. Go in your Bible to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Some people mistakenly say Jesus didn't talk about tithing. Yes, he did. In fact, it's recorded several times, and in two separate occasions, he spoke directly about it. Notice what Jesus says here in Matthew 23, verse 23. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Those are garden spices. It says, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Well, what does Jesus consider to be the weightier matters of the law? Judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. He basically says, hey, listen, you are supposed to tithe in your garden spices, but you're supposed to prioritize things the way God does. And when God looks at things, to him, judgment, justice, mercy, and faith were key matters of the law and much more important than tithing your garden spices. But Jesus says, do both, but have your focus correct. The first tenth, obviously, uh, that we give demonstrates our faith in God. It belongs to God. It is not ours. And because it is not ours, Malachi chapter 3 describes not tithing as robbing God. Because it is not ours, it is robbing God, so to speak. People don't often talk about giving their tithe, though I'm personally careless about this. It is technically paying our tithe. We give our offerings, we pay our tithe. That first tenth belongs to God, not to us. You say, okay, Brother Wally, I get it, but what should I tithe on? Should I tithe on my gross income uh, before tax? Should I tithe on my net income after tax? Should I tithe on gifts that people give me? Should I tithe on what I grow in my garden and on my tax returns? Let me ask you your, answer your question with some questions. What do you want as far as financial blessings? Let me ask another question. Where are you in your spiritual life? Are you just starting? Are you someone who's supposed to be more mature in your faith? What kind of situation have you gotten yourself into? Listen, I have no, no, no authority to ever tell anybody not to tithe because I'm not the one who come up with a commandment. But I would tell you, if you're not making your car payment, uh, I would tithe on your net rather than the gross. By the way, if you tithe and you don't make your house payment, you're not really tithing the bank is. 
Because that's not your money, you're not paying them. Listen, have you ever really thought about this? I mean, there's so much talk about liberty in American Christianity today. Uh, Did you know that you have the liberty to give 11%? You have the liberty to give 15%. You have the liberty to give 20%. I know of people who use their liberty to keep 10% and give 90%. Why, why is liberty always to do the least you can do? Listen, as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, I believe we stop looking to do the least we can do and instead consider ways that we can go the extra mile for Christ's sake. Someone said there are no traffic jams on the extra mile. And that is certainly true when it comes to going the extra mile with giving. So as we consider bountifully giving, it certainly begins with our tithe, whether most correctly we pay our tithe, but technically haven't given anything yet, which gives us to the second thing tonight, number two, the scriptures clearly imply we should give offerings above the first tenth of our income. You see, offerings technically by definition are money that we give over and above the first tenth that belongs to God already. Now our offerings, unlike our tithe, can be given to anyone or anything that the Spirit of God moves our heart to help. By the way, I hope that you give above your tithe as God moves your heart to all sorts of things. I hope you give some of your offerings to other causes here, like our building fund and missions and offerings we take for all different sorts. But I hope also that you give offerings to just random people that you see in the circle of your life who need something. This offering is implied by the many occasions where faithful Jews gave offerings in the Old Testament both before and after the law of Moses. Have you ever really thought about this? If you offer a calf for a thank offering in today's money, depending on the size of the calf, that's between $300 and $1,000. That was their thank offering. Listen, have you ever thought about if you're a farmer and you choose to harvest your field only six uh, years out of seven instead of seven years out of seven? Do you realize apart from God causing that field to increase more than normal over those six years, that cost you 14%? Offering is implied by the basic difference in living under law and living under grace. We have a better covenant and better promises. Does it really make sense to you to offer God less now that he has shed his blood and died than the Old Testament Jews who only knew of the Messiah through shadow and type and promise? Say, Brother Wally, how much should I give as an offering? Welcome to living under grace. You decide how much you give. I do not believe that anyone ever can or will outgive God. I believe under grace, with a heart filled with love for Christ, we decide what we give above the minimum to our Lord as charity. And as we grow in grace, I believe our offerings should grow as well. Remember, you're listening to this not from somebody with the spiritual gift of giving. You're listening to this from someone who began giving because I was supposed to. 
And over the years, by the grace of God, I hope God would look at me as a generous and cheerful giver. So under grace, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, the joy of giving holds true whether you have a lot of what this world has or not much. Okay, can I say that over the years, some of the most generous and giving people I have known are not people who had a lot of this world's goods. But they just generously gave of what God gave them. And, and I could call names. But, but I wouldn't do that because it might cause them to get less of a reward from our God for being so generous. You know what? I've also known some very generous people who God gave a lot in life. And God gave them even more. Because when we give generously, God bountifully blesses what we give. Which gets us to our next thing, number three. The Scriptures clearly teach our tithe should go to the church. Go in your Bible to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. By the way, you'll never hear what I just said out of the mouth of somebody with a national ministry. I would describe myself as someone who fails to love you as much as you deserve to be loved. Someone who fails to love you as much as I wish I loved you. But this much I know, I love you more than anybody you've never met who you send to from the television or radio. Notice, God clearly said the tithe goes into the storehouse. And Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 says, Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? God's answer, in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you've robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. Notice the storehouse is God's house, that there would be meat, food in mine house. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Say, what did the tithe to the storehouse, the Jewish temple do? It was used for the priests, Levites serving, so they'd have food used for repairs, maintenance on the temple buildings. It was used to supply things they need, needed for different worship and services in the temple, bread for the table of shoe bread, oil, olive, for the candlestick, the morning and evening sacrifices for the nation. It was used for polish and rags for the brass, silver, and gold of the temple. It was for the garments of the priests and the high priests. It was for wood and the altar. It was for incense. It went for all kinds of practical things. God says, listen, bring your tithe to the storehouse. Now, at Bible Baptist Church, just like in the Jewish temple, the money they gave was used uh, as the temple saw fit to use it for the work of God. Uh, when, at Bible Baptist Church, one-tenth of what you give to our general fund goes to missions. Uh, it ought to sound familiar when I say the first tenth of what you get should go to the Lord's church, and so it made sense to me when we started Bible Baptist Church that the first tenth of what we get as a church goes to missions. Now, in our 2022 budget, we actually gave to missions 12.35% of our budget, a little over $80,000.
And just also, since we're on the subject, uh, I want to remind you, I have no idea who gives what. Now, I know some pastors don't handle it like that. I choose to handle it like that. I don't want you ever to feel that I treat you well or treat you badly because I know what you give. I don't want to be tempted to treat you well or treat you badly because I know what you give. And so if I treat you badly, it just came out of my own heart. <laughs> you say, well, we don't live, we're not Jews, and this is not the Jewish temple. You're right. Go back in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. By the way, if this kind of thought bothers you, listen, I'm just teaching the Bible. I, I get it. There's probably people in this room tonight. You don't tithe. Listen, you will not have as much stuff as you could otherwise have if you just choose by faith to give God the first tenth. I, I'm going to tell you what, it's hard at first. And then when you get making more money, it's even harder until you remember that back when you gave that other number, you made less money. The storehouse for believing people today is the church we attend. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Notice God, uh, through Paul, had order in the churches for their giving. Verse 2 says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him that there be no gatherings when I come. Notice a part of their assembly was collecting money. Notice God purposely picks the word store for where they gave their money, and he links what he's saying here to the storehouse back from Malachi chapter 3. It's very easy to see the Lord's church as a place which fulfills the role of storehouse that the temple did in the Old Testament. Now, if you read that just with an honest and humble heart, I mean, it's very obvious that the first tenth should go to our church. And again, no national ministry that you listen to, they're not going to teach this. They want your money. Let me ask you, has your faith reached your wallet? Has your heart for Christ reach deeply into your budget and bank account. Could you honestly say that, you know what, if I did not tithe, I would live at a much higher economic level than I now live. That should be true. Stories told about a woman who gave her son, Billy, two quarters. One was for his Sunday school offering. The other was for ice cream on the way home. Billy was just a little boy, and he was walking toward the church outside. He was flipping his quarter in the air and catching it, and unfortunately, he flipped the quarter up in the air. It rolled along the sidewalk and went into the sewer. He stooped down. He looked in the sewer for his quarter. Of course, he could not see it. He could not reach it. But he looked skyward and said, sorry about your quarter, God. You see, the real issue is who owns what we have. 
Does everything you have and I have belong to God or does it belong to us? Is God the one who pays for every mishap in your life because your quarter rolled into the sewer? Or should I say God's quarter rolled into the sewer, but you still have yours for ice cream? Are you here tonight? Do you want to reap bountifully? We all do. Then you must decide to give faithfully and work as you grow to do so cheerfully. Amen? You quietly stand tonight.